You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, we're going to talk about the Kaseya VSA breach issue. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's just get started uh, realizing that one of my intentions here is to give people actionable intel to be able to do things with, which is uh, what the really the vein of this podcast always has been, has been the, the idea of delivering actionable intel. So let's get started. Uh, first off, those of you who are in the know know that the big VSA breach <clears throat> went public on July 2nd, which would have been a Friday. And at that time, what was happening is, well, I got called that day at around 11 a.m. because I'm known as one of the VSA hardening experts around. And I was reached out to by some uh, incident responders because they were working with individuals who had been compromised. And so I got a pretty insider opportunity to be able to see what was going on in these scenarios. I also had opportunity to be able to collaborate with uh, other VSA hardening experts that were around. Turns out there's not a whole lot of us, which that's a sad thing. What's even more sad is I can tell you that all of us had told Kaseya years prior about a number of issues that should have had attention, adequate levels of attention paid to them. And I mean, I, I could go back to January of 2019, for example, there were things that I submitted to Kaseya in writing that I thought they needed to address that I'd already done the R&D dev testing on and all they needed to do was just to allocate someone to correcting the issue. So one of the challenges that exists here is when you're dealing with organizations that are uh, owned by venture capital firms, then one has to question what is their priority. Are they adequately allocating enough resources to software development and R&D? And perhaps they might not be. <clears throat> and so that is something that you have to evaluate when you're doing a counterparty risk assessment on any software package that you use. Now, to be clear, Kaseya VSA is what's called an RMM. It is a remote monitoring and management tool, and I would equivalent it to being almost as serious as a nuclear launch code. In terms of economic destruction, uh, it's comparable to a nuclear launch code. And we saw evidence of that actually happening here where a number of uh, MSPs had become breached themselves. And because they got breached, their VSA server was then utilized to breach their customers. And then a bunch of computers got ransomware. Now, I don't think we have the exact statistics on it. But let's just say it was somewhere in the realm of about 60 IT services companies. And in some cases, it wasn't actually an IT services company. It could have just been uh, the internal IT for a larger organization who, who didn't outsource, but they happen to have been utilizing that RMM. Now, I do think that Kaseya VSA is a very good RMM in many, many ways. And 
it was invented by some sheer geniuses in the Wayback Machine when they invented that, which I am, just don't quote me on the date, but let's just say it was around about 2006 time frame, potentially earlier than that. Suffice to say that many of the design features of the product were sheer raw genius. I would describe them as uh, the the men, the mental thinkings <laughs> of people who came from enterprise and said, hmm, okay, we have to do this outside of an active directory environment. So we have to do these things in a way where we're getting past the boundaries associated with every device that we're managing is on the inside of the same corporate secured network. And this is a really meaningful concept to understand because there's a lot of techniques that have that as their boundary. I mean, they just don't really scale beyond that. Uh, if you look at Windows Event Collection, that's a great example of that. You know, WEC is a great idea. Uh, WEC and Windows Event Forwarding, you know, these things are very good ideas, but in general, they don't work without another agent on the endpoints unless you're talking about one contiguous, uh, interrelated, LAN-connected, same Active Directory domain environment. So VSA bridged that gap to be able to do a lot of things that uh, still to this date, there is no other RMM that is made on the planet that can compete with the product. Okay, so it's a very good RMM in terms of functionality. It had not had adequate technology investment made into it from a security perspective, and certainly not in terms of a perspective of going back and looking at old code and taking efforts to eliminate old code. And something that I find truly reprehensible, and yes, I do mean that word. I find it reprehensible when a software company has the security information handed to them on a silver platter by experts who happen to be their customers. And then they sit on that and do nothing with it for more than a year, sometimes years and years and years. That is reprehensible because that is basically a situation where a software company is saying that they don't want to make utilization of the highly effective security information that was given to them on a silver platter at no cost to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think probably everybody out there would be like, hmm, you know, gee, if somebody came to me and told me what I needed to do in order to fix my problems and they did it for free and they actually sent it to me in writing with telling me all the specifics about what I needed to do in order to fix the problem. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know a whole lot of people that would turn that down. I mean, especially if it was done inside of a secure communication channel and not some sort of, you know, public shaming garbage, right? You know, I'm not talking about calling up the newspaper and saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. No, I'm talking about somebody literally put in support tickets directly to Kaseya and then nothing happened. Yeah, that's the kind of reprehensible that I'm talking about. So now let's take it another step further. While I would argue that if that really it is the role of the master integrator in order to secure anything, okay, 
if we look at Microsoft's Office 365, it's not necessarily secure by default. And I can't say that that's Microsoft's fault. I mean, why should it be their job to secure the entire thing and implement hardened security settings at, at the outset? You know, maybe that is not the right fit for an organization at that time. I think as soon as uh, a software or hardware vendor starts going into the realm of saying, oh, we're just going to implement these security settings on your behalf because you're too stupid to do it, then uh, they enter into some realms of liability. Now, on the other hand, I think there's a balance there, which is that hardware and software manufacturers should be making some recommendations about how to harden things. And if we look at some really good hardware manufacturers, they do do a good job of these things in general by having training for uh, partners. Partners are organizations that heavily invest into their platforms. And when you're talking about something like, say, a VSA, well, it would have been helpful for them to have an on-premise hardening guide. And again, um, <laughs> this is something that they could have sent a request out to the community and asked for input on. And they could have also, through peer review, figured out uh, who it was who had a tremendous amount of expertise in terms of hardening VSA, because uh, I can tell you pretty much irrefutably that if simply Kaseya management went to the support team, the VSA support team at Kaseya and asked questions about, okay, who's had our VSA servers on premise for more than a decade and who has not had security incidences and who, you know, does not put in stupid, you know, support tickets for stupid reasons and uh, who you've interacted with in the past and you think they have good cybersecurity posture with their premise VSA server. Okay, well, that was a question that was basically free to ask, and I don't think they ever asked that question. Because I know that there are support personnel who would have had positive answers to that question and could have offered up names. And then Kaseya could have taken it one step further and reached out to those individuals and said, hey, you know, can you help us build this hardening guide and we'll compensate you by, you know, giving you disc discounts in pricing or whatever the thing is. Okay, so my point is here is that if they had properly prioritized this sort of security posture improvement work, I really doubt highly if the breach would have ever happened. Because VSA fundamentally is securable. It is. And the sad thing that I've seen happen out of the last you know, month and a half here is that a bunch of MSPs that just don't have the capability to be able to secure these resources themselves is they're just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, well, you know, Kaseya can't secure it for us. We're responsible for it. So either we migrate to the SaaS platform, which uh, don't even get me started on the SaaS platform. Okay, like it's it's neutered. It doesn't have the same level of functionality and I don't think it can be adequately secured. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I personally do not find the SaaS platform to be an option. You know, because really do I want to have a cloud hosted thing that I don't secure have the nuclear launch codes to my resources? Oh, I don't think so. Okay, so I'm not going to beat that anymore. 
But a lot of MSPs have just been like, I, I can't secure this thing, so we're just going to get off the platform. So then they go and run into you know, some other neutered horse hockey application, some other RMM that it has its own counterparty risk. It has its own security problems. They suck in terms of like scripting platforms and they suck in terms of like, they just have inadequate uh, variables. In fact, I think the variables thing is one of the things that just sets me off as like a, the biggest hot button of all time is you go and you talk to the salespeople at these RMMs and they're like, oh, we got variables. No, no, no. You got like 10 or maximum of 30 variables. They're not global variables. You can't name them whatever you want. Uh, and then where are they stored? I mean, just I could do a whole 30 minute podcast on how RMMs are so wrong about how they handle, vari handle variables. VSA is the only RMM that actually does correct variable handling. Okay. Um, but that's not the, that's not the purpose of today's show. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to the security topic. Now in this little adventure I had over the last month and a half, of course, I had to deal with securing many VSA servers. And I also got insight into the ones that got breached. And I can tell you irrefutably, and I do mean irrefutably, irrefutably, the MSPs that were breached had inadequate network layer security. There it is. Because what everyone on this planet needs to realize is that you cannot have adequate security for any system, any process that is electronic and digital unless you have adequate levels of supportable network layer security to protect that, to be a partner in the solution. I'll give you a great example in the manufacturing space. And especially in critical infrastructure, okay, in critical infrastructure, you have what's called operational technology or otherwise known as OT. And in that space, a lot of the controls, a lot of these devices that need to be network connected are technology that was designed more than a decade ago, sometimes more than 20 years ago. And yet this stuff needs to continue to function. You can't patch it. It's built on an architecture that is a decade or decades old. It need, so you need to have it function, but you need to somehow secure it. Well, their only solution for that is network layer security strategy. And you can look at any software application like, say, a VSA, and you can decide, oh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to install the patches for that. Well, that's fantastic. You go ahead and install the patches for that. But just like every other software patch that's out there, there is still a time period between when the vulnerability is known to the bad guys and then they're able to work at exploiting that and the time when the patch is actually available and then finally installed. This is the patch gap. And just because you've installed all of the latest patches doesn't mean that there isn't some other vulnerability. So there is one thing that doesn't lie and can't be fooled and it's network layer security. You know, like if you don't have a rule in place that says that this packet can go from A to B, well, then that packet doesn't go there. It's literally the same thing as you put a stealth cloaking device around an off-ramp on the interstate. Like the, the off-ramp doesn't look like it exists there anymore. No one even thinks it exists. 
right? It's not just, oh, you put up some signs. No, it is a stealth cloaking device for the on-ramp. You cannot see the on-ramp to the interstate, okay? That is network layer security. It makes it look like there is no pathway there. Now, granted, if the fundamental device that creates that network layer security is not adequately secured in itself, well, then, okay, then your premise of thinking that you have network layer security may not be so great. So this is why these things are typically handled by what's what I call master integrators, okay? I'm a master integrator. So master integrators are people who have extensive depth and breadth of experience being and, and expertise especially on the security side, being able to take all of these disparate parts and pieces and integrating them together to create a cohesive and complementary security strategy around whatever it is while still having the business functionality, right? There is a balance there. I've always found that there is a way to have what's called a compensating control. In fact, I got pretty hot under the collar recently. I was on a common controls framework webinar where one of the presenters was talking about setting up controls exceptions. And I'm like, you know, horse hockey, horse hockey. You should not have to design a controls exception. What you should do is say, look, we can't utilize the the standard control technique in order to accomplish the security objective. So we're not going to just say, oh, well, we've got a controls exception. No, 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 no. No, you come up with a different way to have a compensating control for that particular thing so that you can still accomplish the security objective. A great example of this is service accounts. All right, so this particular speaker was talking about how service accounts can't have MFA, so therefore they are a control exception. Wrong. I'm just going to call it. I think it's wrong. Totally wrong. I think that you need to design a system such that if you have a service account, you need to be utilizing and constructing the service accounts in such ways that you have compensating controls. Then you need to document what your compensating controls are. And then uh, you need to specify in the control master evaluator that you're just effectuating the same level of outcome utilizing a different method other than MFA. Okay, so you gotta fundamentally get to the root of what the heck are you trying to accomplish here. If you're trying to say that, you know, look, only uh, authorized parties can utilize this credential in the authenticated or correct authorized ways, and that's what we're gonna use MFA for, and hopefully you're doing MFA with conditional access, but, oh, well, we can't use MFA on this service account. Well, then fine. You just compensating controls. These things do exist. Okay, so my point is, is that it is, I think, naive to say that we have to have a controls exception to things. You don't. You need to just think about what are you actually trying to accomplish with the, uh, the original control and then come up with a way to have a compensating control to effectuate the same level of security outcome. So network layer security can overcome a great deal of stupidity in software and a great deal of disparate levels of management. So you do have to select an appropriate network layer security appliance, and then you cannot have a consensus-based approach to network layer security. You need to just go find a network layer security god and allow them to do their job. 
you know, and I'm not saying don't have business continuity. Yes, there should be a depth of bench of, let's say, two to three people that have that security of the network layer as part of their job uh, function, roles, and responsibilities. But when you get to a realm of trying to have more people than that involved in the strategy as well as the maintenance of that strategy and the maintaining of the value of the investment that you have made into that strategy, it becomes functionally far too difficult to keep that many people on the same page, you know, more than I'd say three. I know 13,000 user companies that only have a network security team of eight people. And they have kind of gotten, you know, they have their their little groups um, of area of influence that they focus on with other people being their backup, you know. So functionally, their teams are also only of the size of three individuals who could uh, potentially have you know, primary function responsibility over a particular set of appliances at any point in time. So, you know, back to the VSA security thing. This was all about network layer security. Because whether or not there were security vulnerabilities in the RMM software itself, you could have overcome and addressed all of those at the network layer. Now, this isn't just the perimeter. I'm talking about strategies where you needed to have that RMM on its own little dedicated, isolated uh, VLAN where the only ACLs that were allowed to go in and out of there were not only inspected with multiple levels of network layer security, but also were very, very tight, tightly controlled. Like when you're dealing with supply chain risk, you have to create a list of things that this resource can communicate with. I'm dead serious when I'm communicating to you that an RMM is close to a nuclear launch code. You need to treat it that way. You really, really need to treat it that way. You know, so this means, you know, if you think you need to be getting to your RMM from your mobile device on the internet, you've lost your ruddy mind. No, I don't want to get to the nuclear launch codes from a mobile device on the internet, from wherever. No, wrong. <laughs> I need to only be getting to that RMM from a privileged admin workstation that has its own network layer security around it, and it has its own, you know, host-based security system around it. You know, like it has its own security profile. You've already done lots of things to make sure that that device doesn't get hacked. So... I mean, this is just, it's a paradigm shift where the IT people need to stop thinking about convenience. I mean, I have discussions with some people on my team and, and none of us think at all about convenience. I mean, we think about the convenience of our customers, obviously, but convenience for us, I mean, is just not even a factor, right? I mean, we're just used to having to authenticate in 50 billion different ways, <laughs> you know, with, and like... What's really fun is <clears throat> sometimes I'll go out to a client site and, you know, I've got to go through some pretty serious hoops in order to even be able to communicate with a device for management purposes. And that is by design. You know, so even in a circumstance where you have physical access, local access, you're on that local network, you're physically in that building, you still have to know the exact hopscotch 
game that you have to play in order to be able to even be authorized from a rules perspective, right? We're talking about the controls that are in place, the technical security controls that are in place that are the barrier before, before you ever even attempt to authenticate. I am still to this day horrified by how many super... Uh, high access web hosted things do not have any mechanism for IP access control restrictions. You know, they're like, oh, we have multi-factor authentication. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, MFA can be defeated. If you're talking about an admin web UI, especially for a cloud hosted RMM, you know, we're talking about nuclear launch codes here, people. Why doesn't this thing have a mechanism for IP access control? I mean, this is not hard to do. Intermedia had this back in around 2006. So if they could do it in 2006, it's absolutely unthinkable that there are web-based, web-hosted SaaS applications that exist today that don't have IP access control restrictions, yet the underlying thing allows you, from an administrative perspective, to get at stuff. I mean, it's just... Again, it's a paradigm flaw. So, you know, the number one thing that people could have done in order to prevent these problems was appropriate network layer security. Okay, now I got to step it into the next kind of wrap it up with this topic, which is the there are people that are literally leaving the industry now. They're selling their businesses and getting out because they don't have the security chops. And, you know, what? frankly, you can't hire it. A typical CISO makes over $300,000 a year. And what I have heard across the board from MSP and MSSP business owners is that whenever they try to hire that talent, they're generally not successful at hiring that talent unless they are running a big sock, you know, but that that's a sock is not an MSP or an MSSP. Now, to be clear, socks do not take care of your computers. Socks do not fix your computers. They do not fix your Office 365. They don't fix your servers. They don't fix your networks. Okay, that's not what a SOC is doing. A SOC is a security operations center. Okay, so while a SOC may have a CISO, okay, most IT service providers do not. In fact, I can tell you that the only IT service providers that I know that actually have a CISO like me on staff, well, they happen to be one of the owners of the business. And that is typically the only way that an MSP can afford to have a CISO. Now that CISO is absolutely critical because that is the person who owns the security policy of that organization and is driving compliance, driving policy, uh, and driving it throughout the entire ecosystem inside of that IT service provider. And this is so imperative. It's so, so, so imperative. You have to find an IT service provider who one of the owners is a security architect. Because if you don't, they, the person of that level of talent financially is just not available to an IT service provider. So those of us that are in the industry uh, that are owners, we do it because this is what we love and we are able to be compensated in other ways other than just uh, some salary that comes strictly from CISO work. Now, if you work with 
an IT service provider that doesn't have a CISO on staff, then who is your information security officer? I mean, you need to be having a virtual information security officer that's functioning to service your organization unless you happen to have an extra 300 grand of your own to be able to hire that person. And then here's the other thing I'll tell you that uh, just like a high-end security architect does not want to work at most organizations, a CISO does not want to work at most organizations because those people have their cream, their pick of where they want to work, and they really only want to work at places that are going to challenge them and give them career growth and um, be edifying in other ways. So it's time to just do some paradigm shifting, folks. So uh, Kaseya VSA, it absolutely can be hardened. It's still an excellent RMM, but it's a little philosophy I've had for years. I feel like if you can't fix it, you probably shouldn't have it. You know, so if you can't fix your skid steer, don't buy one. You know, if you if you can't fix your truck, don't buy one. <laughs> you know, um, just be really thoughtful to that. If the MSP cannot appropriately, thoroughly harden the RMM, then probably they shouldn't have one because a SaaS-hosted RMM doesn't meet the supply chain risk and it doesn't meet the hardening requirements. It also tends to not meet the functionality requirements. Entirely too much counterparty risk there. Remember, uh, it's nuclear launch codes, people. Well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show.